0: Revelation without fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. But John calls this another sign, um, and if it's a sign, it's symbolic, okay? Not necessarily literally seven bowls. It, it, it's, it's a sign. The Greek word there is sameon, and uh, it's the same thing that when John in Revelation 12 talked about the, the woman who we know represents the nation of Israel, and there's the great red dragon. Satan's not a great red dragon, and Israel's not a woman, but they're symbolic. These images that he was seeing were sameons. They were symbols, Okay. And so he sees another sign here, seven angels who will be God's instruments of judgment on earth. He calls the vision great and marvelous. It means, the word great means something that's important and astonishing in the the Greek here. The word marvelous has the idea of this is something that John just wondered at went, Wow. It was like he's having that wow moment when he's seeing it. And he's calling our attention to it because there's something that's really important that's happening. Seven angels with seven last plagues. Now, I think those of us who are somewhat familiar with narratives of Scripture know that plagues are often associated with spiritual situations. Um, You know, obviously we think about Egypt and the plagues that came upon Egypt, but in the law, in Leviticus 26, the Lord said to the people of Israel, if you walk contrary to me and you're not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sin. Okay? so. Plagues are often as a response in the earth to to sin. And these seven last plagues are interpreted by many as a last judgment. Uh, Some see it not necessarily as like actual last days, but just patterns of judgment throughout history. These are things that happen, and your allegorical interpreters would tend to look at it that way. But in this case, he does add something that does kind of make it look like this might be an actual end-time event. For he says... In them, the wrath of God is completed. Now, that's an interesting term. Uh, I told you last week that word wrath, we see a lot in the last few chapters here. Thymos, it it literally means passionate anger. And it says, it is completed. And that word means to reach an end or to reach a goal, to accomplish its purpose. And that tells me, looking at that, that the wrath of God here is intended to accomplish a purpose. And the purpose is accomplished after these things. So God's working a plan, and it's getting accomplished through all of this. It's not just, I'm mad, so I'm going to destroy. No, I am responding to what's happening on earth, and to accomplish his ultimate restoration and his ultimate purposes, he's working his plan. Verse 2, And I looked and I saw a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing by the sea those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his name. We talked a little bit about that. The other week, the presence of the sea of glass is clearly talking about the throne. We have other images where there's this sea of glass that the Lord is, uh, is enthroned that speaks of just the calm that surrounds the throne of the, for the Lord. I love that, that image. But in this case, it's mixed with fire, which again kind of uh, indicates his judgment or his, and, and it's simmering there. And around the throne are those who've been described as being victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. And they held harps given to them by the Lord, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, this is one song, but it's only one song that they're singing, but it's described as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, a lot of times we look at the Mosaic law and we say, oh, that's Old Testament. Ignore that, please. Let's pay attention. And we forget that in reality, the story of Scripture is one continuous story, right? And we see here that God's plan throughout the ages is kind of united in here, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. I I don't think that's to be missed, frankly because we see a perfect union in between law and love, between the old covenant and the new, co- new covenant in this. And the saints are specifically praising things. They're praising God's works. Great and marvelous are your works. They're praising God's ways. Oh, just and true are your ways, Lord. They're praising his worthiness. Who should not fear you, Lord? Who shouldn't glorify your name? And they're, and, and they're giving praise to the worship of the Lord. All nations are going to come and bow before you. And this is what these saints now, did you notice something about all of this? The saints are saying, "Your, your, you, your, 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 you," and they're singing. These martyrs and saints around the throne are focused only on God. They did not focus on the price of their victory. They didn't sing, "We did it, we did it." Who? That's not what they did. They're not focused on themselves at all, are they? It's all about Jesus. They have a true heart of worship, understanding that it's all about you, right? That's what they're doing. These guys could be singing a lot of things because they've been through a lot, but they're not. Their eyes are only on the one who matters. And that reminds me that when you and I are there, the hardships won't matter. The suffering won't matter. Whatever we've dealt with, the things we go, why God today about, eh, they they won't matter. The people who've rejected you, mm, it won't matter. Suffering won't matter. All eyes in that moment are going to be on him. You're not even going to need him. Sometimes we go, Lord, when I get there, I want you to explain this to me. I just got a theory that when you're actually there and you look at him, all that's going to melt. None of that's going to matter because in that moment when you see his glory you won't need any answers because his presence is your answer his glory is your answer and notice this even as even as even as heaven is getting ready to unleash these seven bowls of judgment okay all judgments getting ready to be unleashed in the earth but there's rejoicing in heaven and there's rejoicing among the saints of God in fact it's electric with excitement people saying you know <sighs> It's like one chapter is closing, another chapter, all right, we're ready for this, God. Bring it. Remember, that's the attitude of us, the saints, in the midst of this. They're not going, oh, no, judgment's coming. There's not fear. There's rejoicing and worship. People get spooked about Revelation, but I want you to notice that every single time we look in this book, At what's going on in heaven, we see the saints of God rejoicing in the presence of their Redeemer every single time. Friend, you and I have everything to look forward to and nothing to fear. Verse 5 After this, I looked, and in heaven, the temple that is the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. And out of the temple came seven angels with their seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, shining linen and they wore golden sashes around their chests. Now, both Hebrews 25 and, excuse me, Hebrews, uh, Exodus 25 and Hebrews 8 remind us that the tabernacle that God told Moses to build was based actually on a heavenly pattern. All of the instructions, you know, God gave meticulous instructions to Moses when he built that tabernacle in the wilderness. And there was a reason. It it, it was somehow symbolic of a heavenly pattern. And and the court of the tabernacle that John's seeing here is is not the earthly symbolic copy. This is the real deal, okay? Uh, 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 And and I love the fact that Jesus said it this way. He said, the law and the prophets prophesied until John. Remember when he said that? The law and the prophets. What did that mean? See, all of the law, all the Mosaic law, it was a prophecy, if you will, of Jesus. You can, I, my wife's grandmother used to travel around the country with a model of the tabernacle in her, in her trunk. And she would explain the, the tabernacle, and she would explain how it was revelatory of the kingdom of God and the New Testament era and all the things that, that were in, in the Old Testament. It's not like, you know, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. When we look at this stuff and say, why did God give them these rules sometimes, we forget that all of it is a prophecy of Jesus. It's all symbolic of the kingdom. Some of it we get. Some of it we don't have figured out yet. But in the end, Jesus made it very clear that these covenants, these all of these things were prophetic by nature. They were speaking. That's why we don't ignore the Old Testament. We don't discard it like it's irrelevant anymore. No, Christ is revealed In the Old Testament, over and over again, open your heart with a new covenant heart and look at the Old Testament, and you will see Jesus reflected over and over and over. It's training ground for the heaven and the kingdom. At the end of the day, people came to Christ. Excuse me, people, oh, this is not in the notes. Don't have time for this. Sometimes I talk to Christians, and I've had this conversation with them before. I said, you know, how did people get saved before Jesus? How did people get saved in the Old Testament? And they say, well, they got saved because they made animal sacrifices. And I go, no, no. Actually, Hebrews says the blood of bulls and the blood of goats could never take away sin. What were they saved by? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. They were saved by faith. In other words, they had faith in God. God said this. They believed it, and, and then they asked in faith and obeyed by observing the law, but their obedience to the law was in faith. Does that make sense? So, in a sense, in the Old Testament, they were saved by grace through faith, and in the New Testament, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's why I say it's one continual covenant. I hope that makes sense to you tonight. If not, grab me sometime. I'll try to explain it a little bit more but the point is that God has always called his people by faith. So, if you, if you get that when you're reading the Old Testament, suddenly you'll see this plan that God has had from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. Now, these seven angels come out of the temple having the seven plagues to bring God's judgment. It's interesting they come from the heavenly temple. These guys are not doing this on their own they're coming out of the presence of God they're not moving on their own authority they're moving under God's authority and their white clothing is symbolic of the what they're doing is righteous, it's pure it's from God. These guys are not just uh, you know vigilantes who've decided to you know you know sometimes in the vigilante movies the, you know whatever they the guy he sing, he becomes a criminal to deal with the criminals right? All right you know Jack Bauer breaks all the laws in order to Deal with the terrorists, right? None of y'all know who I'm talking about, do you? They don't make good shows like that anymore. But anyway, the point is, is that that's not this heavenly pattern at all. The heavenly pattern is these guys have come from the presence of the Lord. What they're doing is true and righteous. They're not sinking to the level of the world and the whole process. Verse 7, then one of the four creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one can enter the temple until the seven plagues and the seven angels were completed. Now, the bowls described here are, uh, the the phrasing is, is ritual bowls, and I know there's some of these images that actually show, like, great big deep bowls, but these kind of ritual bowls are actually broad flat bowls. They're almost like pans, okay, saucers. Uh, they're, they're basically shallow, and they were used for pouring out either coals for, for the incense or, or liquids. Like they would have a little bowl with a little bit of blood in it, and it would be sprinkled on the altar. Okay? So, so there's a shallow. So I, I make the point because these are the kind of bowls that you would empty out quickly. Okay? And, and, and it's generally probably not an accident because these kind of pouring outs probably happen rather quickly. Your King James talk about the vials of God's wrath. Terrible translation. Sorry, I like the King James, but that is not. Because what we think of. We think of vials. We think of like some kind of medical test tube or something like that. We think of a vial, right? No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues and the seven angels were completed. This is the final lap. And when this is being poured out, the power of the Lord, the shekinah glory of God, the presence of the Lord, the same that kept people from being able to enter the tabernacle, that kept the priests from being able to enter the temple uh, in, in Solomon's age, this is, this is what we're seeing. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Since nobody could enter the temple, we must assume that the voice from the temple is the Lord himself who's initiating this wrath and telling these angels it's time. Virtually all commentators um, see these bowls as either being poured out As I mentioned quickly, one after the next, or some commentators see them all being poured out at the same time, and I think that mostly has to do with the fact that these are, again, shallow, sacrificial bowls. Before, we saw seven trumpets, remember, and now we see seven bowls. Some wonder if they're the same things, but the seven trumpets tended to each affect one third of the earth. Remember that? But the seven bowls tend to affect the entire earth. So, I think the weight of it is that we're talking about two different sets of judgment here. Now, let's recall, if you can, if I I can bore you academically for just a moment, if I haven't done it already, the four major viewpoints of Revelation, because let's talk about how they view these bowls. Some of your classical historicist commentators who believe that all of this has to do with various stages of history said these seven bowls of wrath and judgment uh, 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 of Babylon were the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Era. You can find some of the great commentators whose names we respect um, say, okay, this is clearly... Uh, the, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. And of course, honestly, if you had lived through the French Revolution, you might have thought you were in the Great Tribulation. You can understand why they believed this. Of course, other historicists came up with other solutions, and some still ascribe future reasoning to it. The Preterists, as always, believed that these seven bowls all had to do with the destruction of Jerusalem leading up to AD 70. It was all fulfilled then. None of it has anything to do with you and me now. The allegorical Or spiritual approach tend to see these as disasters that occur again and again throughout history. These are symbolic of seasons the church and the world goes through, and um, many allegorical uh, guys that I've read actually tend to say that the seven bowls and the seven trumpets are the exact same thing. Again, because one deals with a third of the world and the other deals with the entire world, that's harder for me to buy into. And finally, futurists, which are which represent, as we've discussed in the past, most of your uh, evangelical Americans today tend to look at the book of Revelation, especially from chapter 4 through 19, as, as all dealing with the Great Tribulation. Uh, most of them see these disasters as uh, happening during a World War III called Armageddon. And whether it's a literal Armageddon or a figurative Armageddon, we'll talk more about Armageddon a little bit later on. If you go to a bookstore, Christian bookstore, which we don't really have in this town anymore, but where you order online, you would find more than one book that will tell you exactly what the authors believe all of these seven bowls of judgment are, and they are full of amazing information that seems impossible not to believe. I don't care who the commentator is. You will read him, and you will think, man, that's got to be right because that can't be a coincidence, and for those who are tempted to, to buy into every one of them, just stay with me for a second. I want you to remember the name Robert Fleming. Robert Fleming. Robert Fleming studied these prophecies of Revelation, especially the seven bowls of judgment, and he became the living expert on this at the time. And after studying it extensively, he was convinced he had all the answers, and he published two books. One was called Apocalyptic Key, and the other book was called The Rise and Fall of the Papacy. And they were widely, widely read in 1690. And Robert Fleming in 1690 asked for an audience with King William III of England and let him know about these bowls of judgment. They were getting ready to be poured out on the popes in the years 1793 to 1794. And using all of his mathematical methods that seemed absolutely unrefutable, it made complete and total sense. All the math lined up. All the signs lined up. He calculated the precise time that the pope and the Vatican were going to be destroyed. And Fleming was all the rage. And people don't read Robert Fleming much anymore. Now, I'm really not being caustic. I'm just telling you that I have books on my shelf that I keep for the express purpose of reminding myself of how wrong people can be. I mean, I've got books called like 88 Reasons Why Christ Returns in 1988, which in 1988 I was on the air on the author having an argument on the air. I used to do radio talk show stuff more back in the day with the author of that book who I saw people in my hometown in North Carolina selling their homes, getting ready for the rapture of the church. All throughout history, there have been people who've come up with, this is the exact model. Always take it with a grain of salt, folks. Okay? You'll be a lot happier and a lot less fearful. The Word of God is God's Word. Men's interpretation of God's Word is a completely different thing. And as I've shown multiple times in this class, every generation has looked at this thing and tried to interpret it completely within the light of the season of life in which they live, and you and I occupy a tiny slice of history. That's why we need to be busy during the tiny slice we occupy doing the kingdom. Okay, We've got our job to do, but if we it is, it, is, it is a little bit of arrogance to assume everything is us now. Of course, the greatest question that a lot of people have is, are these literal plagues or are these symbolic? Or as I've often said, sometimes they're both. Even futurist commentators believe sometimes some of the plagues are symbolic. In many ways, as I mentioned, they they remind us of the plagues of Egypt, boils and waters turning to blood. uh, Verse 2, chapter 16 says this, the angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The King James Version refers to them as foul and loathsome sores. Don't you love the King James sometimes? And all of those who've received the mark of the beast, all of those who are who have worshipped him, and I pointed out the other week that only those who worshipped him received the mark, by the way, um, are afflicted with these sores. Now, the sores probably would be described as an ulcer. The the, 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 the term in the Greek would, uh, be, would probably be literal, you know, but, but at the same time, when someone has, yes, that's a nice picture. We move on to the next one. <clears throat> Why did I put that in there? Just to be shocking. Um, but when there's when an ulcer, when there's something wrong, I mean, there's some sickness, there's some bacteria, there's some situation. So it could also, some allegorical commentators speak of, it could be, it could be symbolic in some sense. But the ulcers in Egypt were real enough. They were literal, so. Um, a lot of prophecy writers in the modern era have suggested that uh, could, this could be the result of nuclear or biological warfare. Uh, those are all very valid possibilities. Maybe there's contaminants. There's no real way to know for sure. Um, again, who knows? But uh, all that is speculation, but certainly there's something happening here. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Once again, this is kind of like Exodus, but on steroids. I mean, this is, this is really dramatic. Um, in Revelation 8, we saw the, this partial contamination of the seas, a third of the sea or the third of AC were contaminated. But here, it's like global. It's like every, the, the language really insinuates that everything in the ocean died. It doesn't say the sea became blood, but it became like blood. In other words, it, 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 it became, un you know, nothing could live in there. And if this is literal, then the seas would become a vast cemetery. I think you can picture what would happen. I mean, what would happen to all that sea life? It flowed to the top. The earth would be quickly uninhabitable. This would not be a very long period of time. Some have said it's just like a red tide. We've been through red tides. And red tides can be pretty dramatic experiences in places in the world. I, I've actually seen places, not in the saltwater setting, but in freshwater settings, where the algae had, had contaminated the water to where it was like bright, bright red. It looked just exactly like blood. it, it is not an uncommon occurrence in situations. These are some actual pictures of situations where, where there was an algae bloom and, of course, all the life in, the, in that particular body of water died as a result of that. Red tide, of course, killed millions and millions and millions of fish right here in Indian River County. And it also, by the way, poisons anyone who eats the fish. Okay. So there's a great possibility. And so a lot of futures commentators tend to say, this is what this is, there's some sort of ecological disaster on the earth, could very well be true. A lot of global warming people would tell you that just a few degrees would make a difference and those that algae would bloom. I don't know. I don't know what the Lord will use, but if this is a literal event, life on earth won't last very long because the ocean produces our oxygen, right? So it would would be bad in that day. Um, And some point out that regardless, it seems like God's tearing down all the things that men take for granted. Okay, water, you know, these sort of things, our health. The third angel poured out his bowl, on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became like blood. Here again, this is a complete, not a one-third, but a complete on the fresh waters. And this is a huge ecological disaster that, that appears that John has seen. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, because you are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, "Yes, Lord, God Almighty, great or true and just are your judgments." Adam Clark, the old commentator said, "They thirsted after blood and massacred the saints of God, and now they have blood to drink." This was basically what the, what the angel in charge of the waters was saying, "God's judgments are serious, you know, but they're just." Pharaoh tried to drowned Jewish baby boys. But then eventually his army was drowned in the Red Sea. Haman tried to hang Mordecai on his gallows and exterminate the Jews, but he was hung on the gallows. God has a sense of historical irony, doesn't he? And and, and that's what's happening. You know, one of the ones that I don't hear talked about as much, but it's always struck me, Saul rebelled against the Lord. In fact, the prophet Samuel said to him, Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Where did Saul spend the last night of his life? In a house of a witch. Because he couldn't hear the voice of the Lord, and he's trying to get some sort of message. Wow. Talk about historical irony. God's judgments are not man's, but they are really amazing, and they're really awesome. So even in the midst of the judgment, it's right, and the angel says this. Hey, look, not only is God's justice true, it's fair and just, no matter what we think. And I heard the altar respond. I love this. Yes, Lord God Almighty, great and just are your judgments. Remember who's under the altar? The martyrs, the saints of God. This is the saints of God who've lost their lives for the sake of the kingdom. And that's the voices that are responding. Lord, yep. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over the plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. All right, so the sun begins to bring incredible heat on the earth, and Al Gore said, yes, I told you. Sorry, I couldn't resist. If we take this literally and not symbolically, what is normally taken for granted is the blessing of the warmth of the sun. Something's happened. Our ozone layer has been destroyed. There's all kinds of speculation. Again, if this is a literal happening, then something has occurred. And there's, again, an environmental disaster that is what appears to be that John is seeing. Um, But despite all of these events, I notice this. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, and they refused to repent and glorify him. I want to leave on this thought tonight. You know, people with hard hearts are often difficult to reach. In fact, uh, I've often told people, if you're trying to reach people, begin by praying with them. We've, we've had a practice over here. It's been a while since we really emphasized it, but we had a practice here for years of, of getting together in groups of three and praying for people that we, that we intended to reach. Okay, we're going to go reach these people. Let's make a list of the people we want to reach for the kingdom, and let's take 30 days and let's pray for them. Let's pray that the Lord would open the eyes of their heart that the the work of the enemy that blinds their eyes would be undone. In other words, uh, the phrase I used a lot was, we want to marry our intercession to evangelism. Uh, Because hard hearts are hard to reach. We often think if people saw a demonstration of power, they would turn to God. But the Bible actually teaches otherwise. Consider Pharaoh, who saw the signs and hardened his heart. He saw the pillar in the fire, and he hardened his heart. Those who are not won by the grace of the gospel will never be won. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of the pains of their sores, but they refused to repent of what had been done. Some see this as a symbolic darkness. It could, could be. The plague on Egypt, I'll point out, was a literal darkness with spiritual overtones. I mean, it could be felt description of Exodus, that it, uh, the, the darkness had a tangibility to it. It says here that men gnawed their tongues in agony, but again, no repentance, no change. Repentance is change. In the New Testament, when we read the English word repent, um, the Greek word that's typically in there is a word that means to change one's mind. The, the Hebrew word that's used, repent, also typically means to change one's direction. So both in the Old Testament and New Testament, we see that changing, that repentance is about a change of thinking and a change of direction. Repentance isn't an emotion. Repentance is not an emotion. Repentance is a decision. I sometimes use this example to describe repentance. If I get into my car and I go out to the interstate, and my intention is to go to Palm Bay, and I, suddenly I'm driving a little bit, and I look up and I see the sign and it said South? I don't mean to go south. I go, Oh, no, I'm going the wrong direction. And the revelation occurs to me that I'm going the wrong direction. Now, I could get to Indria Road, and I could pull off the side of the road, and I could get out of the car, and I could lay down on the ground, and I can cry and I can weep, and I can squall. oh, I'm such an idiot, oh, and I can lay there for an hour and a half and get in my car and keep going south. Or I can take the turn, get going north, and hit the gas a little harder. That is biblical repentance. And I say this because there's a lot of times people will Come to an altar and they'll cry. They'll be so sorry for their sin, but they won't change. And they may feel great emotion. They may shed a lot of tears, but not repent in a true scriptural sense. That's kind of important to know. Um, sometimes people, especially with certain backgrounds. Sometimes think of repentance as like doing ordinances or doing penance. But it is possible to go through religious rites. It is possible to have emotion and never repent in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense, repentance is a firm inward decision. It is a change of mind and a change of behavior. And repentance precedes salvation. Repentance precedes the kingdom. It's another Long message for another day. But the kingdom, you know, it, it's the reason why John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Repentance proceeds. There's a, there's a place where we genuinely in our hearts change, and, and until we have that. And that's the difference here. There's a lot of people, and you probably encountered it, and I have too. And, and these men, they're angry, they're upset, they're crying, they're having all the emotions, but they're not changing their ways because their hearts have become hardened. And in the last days, I believe the Scripture would teach us that there are days in which men's hearts indeed have been hardened. And yet, as we approach these days and the time we live, I'm drawn time and time again to the opportunity that you and I have. I'll bring you back to the here am I, send me part. We're living in a day that sometimes we shake our heads at what we see. If you've been around long, if you're my generation or older, you you can't believe how much the world has changed in the course of your lifetime. My mother's birthday is today, and I marvel at how much the world has changed in her lifetime. She was a Depression-era child in which she grew up in a culture that almost everybody went to church, almost everybody had knowledge of God. And and things that are kind of normal today are, are shocking for her generation. We're living in a time of great darkness. And yet the scripture teaches that where there is darkness, there's also opportunity for great light. Years ago, the Lord pointed out to me the passage from Isaiah 60 when I was praying about the time in which he called me to live and trying to make a difference. And the picture I saw was Isaiah 60 where it says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, there is darkness darkness covering the earth, and thick darkness is over the people, but the Lord rises on you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. It's like this. We're living in a time that you could almost look at Isaiah and say, which is it, Isaiah? Is it darkness or is it light? No, it's both, because in the midst of this great darkness, Our response, yes, we grieve over the darkness, but our response is to recognize that, yes, there is incredible opportunity for light. Let's claim it. Let's be that light. Because even in the midst of this, I think there's going to be greater manifestations of his glory. There's going to be greater manifestations of his power. There's going to be greater opportunities to see the healing of bodies, to see the manifestation of his glory in our midst. We need to expect it. We need to go for it. We need to anticipate it. Because in the midst of this great darkness, glory rises on the people of God. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.